Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Welcome to the Law in the Family podcast brought to you by the Family Law Section of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Today we have Jill Scheidt. She is a family law attorney out of Berks County with the law firm Masano and Bradley. Jill, welcome. Before we get started here, briefly just tell us about yourself and, you know, just a little bit of background about your practice as a family law attorney. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony and Aaron, for having me. This year I'll be practicing 30 years. I have spent my career here in Berks County. I grew up in Chester County. I've done all types of litigation in my uh, career from personal injury litigation to criminal defense and quite a bit of family law, which is where I've been concentrating primarily over the last about eight to 10 years. And uh, I enjoy going to court. I enjoy uh, litigation and have had some very high conflict uh, custody cases, which uh, is why you've invited me to talk to you this morning. So thank you. Thank you. So let, let's get right right into it. So the, the title of this podcast is a catchy phrase, so to speak, parental alienation. We're going to start with not necessarily what that is or what definitions are out there, but we're going to ask you, what is it not? What, what isn't parental alienation or just how is it not used or could you clarify there? Sure. Uh, it, it's pretty clear that the uh, medical psychological community has steered clear of the term and the diagnosis. Alienation is a pretty loaded, charged label. Uh, what it isn't is a psychiatric or psychological diagnosis. It does not appear in the DSM. Uh, I also believe, although I can't speak for them, that the legislature has stayed away from the word, and we don't use the word in the custody factors. So I'd say that's what it isn't first. And if we could touch a little bit on the DSM that you mentioned, that's referring to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So shorthand, DSM, we're in the fifth edition of that. And uh, can you just kind of give our audience a little bit of a, of a summary as to what that manual is and how it's used? Sure. The, the DSM is like the Bible of diagnoses, and there are codes associated. There are very specific descriptions of diagnoses in there. For instance, various forms of schizophrenia and different personality disorders and different uh, diagnoses of depression and anxiety. They're all very specifically defined and coded. And my understanding is that the concept of parental alienation was first developed, as we understand it, in the 1980s. I understand that maybe the concept of it goes back to some diagnosis in, in the 1940s or at least some clinical examinations of it. But for our purposes, that this kind of phrase of parental alienation syndrome, which I think it was commonly used, that's been floating around our court system and our, in the psychological communities for, for about 30 years. Uh, but has it ever really been codified or or solidified as a discernible either disease or syndrome that's been upheld in court? Not in Pennsylvania that I'm aware of. I understand that in other states, 
there may be um, some codification or definition and in some states it's considered a form of child abuse, but not in PA. We seem to be keeping our distance from using that label. And also, I mean, I, I think other folks in the mental health community have, have tried to apply factors from what they've seen. But again, these are all very individualized efforts. And please correct me if I'm wrong, such that there's not a single, as we sit here today, there's not a single standard that can just be used for this term, parental alienation. Correct. Yeah, it's very loose, very case-by-case analysis. And there are some psychologists and psychiatrists and some very well-meaning uh, maybe activists, for lack of a better word, people who feel they've been alienated from their parents or the target of alienation in their in their family unit who have spearheaded research or trying to come up with objective checklists. But but it is not um, we're not there. And so we're just scratching the surface again in, in this podcast. But, Jill, I mean, if you could some guidance for you know, family law attorneys, other professionals out there where they get a case or a client or a matter or, you know, even judges, custody conciliators, anyone involved in the Pennsylvania child custody process, what would you recommend? The first thing you do when when you encounter something that might be this or the other side's making a claim. Right. There are some some pretty telltale signs. And I can tell you what I think parental alienation is, so, what I'm looking for, which let's, is let's let's a, hear that. Yeah. What, okay. What's your what, your 30 years plus practice? What do you think? What I think is it, it's a family dynamic of a pretty extreme dysfunction, the result of which is that one parent's relationship has been damaged by the other parent, not as a result of some other outside force, but by the other parent. So what you're left with is the carnage. And it isn't just a child saying, well, I would prefer this schedule. I love both my parents, but I, I would I want to be primarily in the physical custody of one of them. It's It's not that. It's the result. It's a very clear dysfunction and a damaged relationship between one of the parents and and the child caused by the other parent. And again, very loaded term. I try not to use the word alienation very often, quite honestly. What I'm looking for, if if people start telling, well, first of all, I'm not looking for it in every case. But when people come in and tell me my child does not want to live with me, does not want to do X, Y and Z with me. And before our separation, we had a good relationship. We had a normal relationship. And then you start hearing the other indicia that that makes me sit up straighter, which is um, the child sounding like an adult, perhaps parroting what the other parent has said. And then I start my analysis, which takes a pretty long time and a lot of effort, right? We have to get to know our clients really well. And before you go further on that, I mean, say say you are someone new. I mean, are there resources out there? And I think you certainly can rely on your experience in cases and talking with professionals, you know, right out of the gate. Any Anything that really you recommend professionals do? So what I recommend is that we all have to have a sensitivity to the subject. We all have to recognize and and read. You can read a lot of articles. There are books written about this, a lot of articles written about this, where you're looking for the behaviors or the results of the behaviors 
And let's face it, um, we may be representing the parent who is engaging in the alienation, right? Because for everyone who's a targeted parent, there's a targeting parent. So we need to be familiar with this particular family dynamic and, and again, not just parroting what our clients tell us. But the how we educate ourselves, there are, like I said, there are some very good psychologists and psychiatrists who have gravitated towards these, and these cases are tough, they're willing to take these high-conflict, toxic cases where you have children who are perhaps entrenched in their positions, who have written articles, who have tried to conduct some studies, so you need to be aware and, and rest assured that when our clients walk in our offices and they feel they are the victim of alienation, they will have read these articles too. Some of people come into my office and they have done their own analysis and said, well, I found this checklist on the Internet and I think I am the targeted parent and I've done my scoring on this. So if you and and you're not going to know that on an initial consult, most likely. So if you have this issue, what you should do is educate yourself. There are like I said, there are books, there are articles about what to look for. There are various forms of parental alienation, intentional versus unintentional, conscious, unconscious, if you will, or subconscious. So you need to know that it's a possibility when you have someone coming in saying, my kid doesn't want to be with me or my kid doesn't want to be with my ex and I'm right and here's why. Does that help? So it does. And it brings to mind a few things that we run into with clients, which is having done their own homework, they've reached a conclusion that they may be entrenched in. And with this issue in particular, where it's not a diagnosis, where there's so much room for interpretation, can it be dangerous to have someone that is has made this conclusion based upon their own experiences? And they may be a little too close to the situation to be objective about whether or not alienation exists or whether there might be some other factors that they're diminishing because they want to arrive at a certain conclusion. And to go off that, we certainly could go down quite a path here of talking about the subjectivity across all of family law, right? But Joe, just to clarify, even in cases where the legal system has used the term parental alienation, can I pull up a case and guarantee to a client and say, yes, I can guarantee that these four factors are met. And yes, I can guarantee that parental alienation will be found in your case or something in that regard. Does that exist almost in any family law case? Yeah, I think that's a rhetorical question, Anthony, but I never use the word guarantee other than when I'll tell someone, I guarantee you, you're going to get in trouble for that. <laughs> but boy, that's the big challenge. What I tell people is this is a really long process because although you might find a judge here or there who's willing to say, I'm going to find alienation without anyone even telling me, I think you need to have a pretty big psychological workup in a case where you're alleging this. And and, and let's start at the beginning. If you have a child in a case who, who says, I don't want to spend time or any time or very limited time with one parent, yeah, you've got a you've got a psychological mess on your hands that's going to need some intervention. So, no, Anthony, I would never say I guarantee it. I would say what you're describing, potential client, is 
that there there might be alienation going on. And I would say that to a client who I think uh, might be the targeting parent or, or the beneficiary of whatever the alienation actually is and say you need to be prepared that uh, we get a psychologist involved, a guardian ad litem, uh, or you have a hearing, a judge may find that, that you contributed to this. Because usually both parties have unclean hands, if you will. To some extent. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, I guess back to, back to the question that I posed. I mean, to a certain extent, there is some difficulty or some concern where you may have people that are pulling information from different jurisdictions about what is or isn't alienation and they're ready to, to really try to fit their fact pattern into those. For someone in your position, when you're trying to synthesize all those facts, is there a methodology that you use to just try to start to get your hands around it that you can then either confirm their suspicions? As you said, maybe it is there or are you able to try to walk them back from that position? That's a good question. It, it depends how far down the road they are. We all get clients for whom we're lawyer number three, four, or five, or six, and we have either a judicial finding of, of some kind of estrangement or alienation already. How do you walk back? I find that that's next to impossible when people are entrenched. If you're fortunate enough to get involved at the very beginning, you perhaps can mold. If you're involved at the right around separation and it hasn't been entrenched, the, the, the patterns and people trust you, maybe you can do that and get them, find some therapists in your community, which is a huge challenge here in Berks, to, to find people who are A, qualified and B, willing and C, capable of communicating to lawyers and the court, what needs to be done. Very, very difficult. So how do you do it? And, and Aaron, you're correct. People come in, they're on listservs, they're listening to podcasts like this, they're listening to people who've written books because it's very emotional and they may have been the, the target of alienation either as a child or as a parent, and they're telling their stories. And then they come in and they say, I need you to buy into what I'm feeling and what I'm doing and what we do as lawyers is is gather facts. And, and our job is very challenging because I don't talk to children. I don't think it's appropriate that I speak to children. They're not my clients. What I do when I think there is a high conflict possibility here, because if it's not alienation, it's probably something else. I don't know what it is, is I get as much history as I can. And if there is information that lies with other professionals like counselors, maybe the parties have been involved in marriage counseling, but usually not. So I have to create it. I get a lot from my clients. I try to figure out what happened if there were other events, because rest assured, if you're alleging alienation, the other parent's going to say, no, it wasn't my fault. It was yours. And, and here's why. You're the one who had the affair. You're the one who left the family. And that's why the kids don't like you now. It's not my fault. So you gather as much information. I have my clients create custody logs, go back in time, write down what they can. And sometimes I interview other family members and I get professionals involved to start doing evaluations. So that might be a good way for us to talk a little bit about a recent case of yours, uh, which went up to the Superior Court. And the reason why I think it's interesting is because I've reading the opinion of the Superior Court and also reading the, uh, the trial court's opinion. It seems to touch on a lot of the different challenges of a high conflict custody case in which the phrase parental alienation was used. And so I'd like to kind of start by you speaking a little bit about what the process was that the court employed to reach some of its determinations in terms of interviews with the kids and also any evaluations that occurred. Sure. Uh, Let me start by saying I have a great deal of respect for this trial judge who has since left family court in large part because of these high conflict alienation cases. Great deal of respect for him. As many trial judges experience, 
he came onto the bench with no family law background. And my impression was he was rather surprised when he saw some some of these high conflict custody cases that we all anymore are not surprised by. Right. What happened here was these people agreed on a 50 50. So all seemed well at the beginning. They lived close together, agreed on a 50 50. And within months of that stipulation, I believed that father was engaging in an alienation campaign. But again, we need to gather a whole lot of information. So I filed a petition requesting an evaluation. And I alleged in an effort to show my cards, educate the court that here's what's been happening. Here's what the children are saying and doing that lead me to believe that this is now dysfunctional. And judge, this is this is my concern. I have a concern that the relationship between mother, I represent mother, and the children is damaged. And I would like to have a higher level of care here. And as you can hear how I'm describing this, this is how I was talking to the court. I did not run in. I didn't go from zero to 60 and say he's an alienator. I probably should have because that was the ultimate finding, right? But that was uh, three years later. I went in and I said, here's what's happening. The children are not going with mom. This is what they're saying to mom and not telling tales out of school because they're telling mom. I'm concerned. This is what I'd like to do. At the same time, dad's lawyer filed a petition. This is very classic. And said, yeah, the kids don't want to go with mom. Give me primary. So he filed a petition to modify because mom broke up the family and this is her fault. And by the way, judge, I don't want these children to be around mom's paramour, who was well known to the children. Before you go any further there, in your experience, filing a petition to get a mental health evaluator involved, and I would imagine this from your perspective, you know, you weren't just requesting counseling. You were requesting a forensic mental health evaluation where this mental health professional's purpose would not be therapeutic, but for the purposes of assisting the court. What I've seen is it, it has changed over time. Do courts just rubber stamp those petitions? Do you, do you think you have to argue and show some basis before a judge would require that? Jill, I'm interested in, in what you've seen. Right. And as we talked about previously, the appetite for different evaluation ebbs and flows. And I see in different counties, different things happening at different times. So I always have a basis. I do not think the judges just rubber stamp these. I believe we have to justify here in Berks why we want what we want. I try to be laser focused. Uh, for instance, if I think one party has a mental health issue or a drug and alcohol issue, let's address that rather than this full-blown custody evaluation. But here, I was very specific. I said, I'm concerned that there is a dysfunction, and I believe that what we need is a specialist who knows about this issue. The counterargument to that is that if you hire someone who's a specialist in alienation, that's what he's always going to find, right? That's the counterargument. That the one year carpenter, the whole world looks like a nail. Thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to dredge up from my memory, Aaron. Right. So I did not have that counterargument here, but I went into the judge and and back to back to discussions about who you're appearing in front of. This is why I don't do a whole lot outside of Berks County anymore. You really have to know your judge. You very, very much have to understand where they're coming from, from their own experiences as a lawyer and the other cases you've had with them. And I know every couple of years we have to learn new judges and that's just how the world works. Same thing with the masters we appear in front of. And I knew that this particular judge was new to family court. So I went in and I said, here's what I'm seeing. 
to some extent, and the older I get, the more I believe this, our number one skill is our own political capital. So when you walk into the courtroom and you say, this is what I'm concerned about, Judge, and here's why, and this is what I think we should do about it, because I think one of the mistakes a lot of lawyers make is they ident- we identify the problem. We're real good at that, right? We identify the problem, but how do we solve it? And in this alienation arena, more than any, I find that the, the tools to solve the problem are, are woefully inadequate. But diagnosing the problem, I think, is easier than solving it. So trying to you have to create some type of record and and it starts with your actual petition and say, I'm not looking to change the schedule right now, because, quite frankly, the schedule isn't the problem. Right. You can still have alienation. The schedule is not the problem. It's it's the relationship either between the parents or what the parents doing to the child. And you go in and say, here's what I think the issue is. I don't know for certain we need to get a shrink involved, and you need to be prepared to name who you want. You need to be prepared with identifying how much they cost, what the time limit is, and uh, time is not on your side when you're the alienated parent. But I think that's the long-winded answer to your question, Anthony. All right. So, again, Aaron, I think you posed a, the good case here. I mean, so, Jill, you're, you have a case like this. You go in and, you know, the judge says, okay, let's get a professional involved. And now a professional is is involved, or is I guess in some cases is not, which can be the challenge. So hear from you, Jill. Different ways that this can go right. this this can go, you know, with a professional, without a professional, and what happens. Right. So one of the one of the other options we have, ideally I like both, but I understand people have finite resources, is I, I like to have a psychologist involved who has expertise in this area who's going to say, yeah, I found it or I didn't find it or it's minor and here's what I suggest we do. I also like to have a guardian ad litem involved because I find that they bridge the interviewing the children and gathering that information to the court better than the psychologists do. And and ideally I want both because the GALs are going to bring the kids in and talk to them and and they know how and they're lawyers. And they they know what they're looking for. The shrinks can do the diagnostics. And that's what I'm looking for there. Because, okay, in my humble experience, a severe alienator has a personality disorder. And there's other stuff going on. The GAL isn't going to be able to resolve that other than to say, there's an issue here. I want to send this parent to, to counseling for it. But I want the shrink to say there's alienation going on or there's not. And if there is, these are the issues that the parents have because alienators typically tend to be men tend to be perhaps narcissists who marry empaths. And these are the things I've learned from attending seminars and reading books. And so you, you've got these people like find each other and then the dynamic blossoms. So how do you get to the underlying issue? So what I do is go in and I say, I want an evaluation, but let's face it. If your client doesn't have any money, there's no evaluation happening. So what's the next best thing? GAL. Some people might say that is the best thing. And the GAL is going to get it done faster, but it is going to be different. So having all that, having all those people appointed would be great. Otherwise, you're going to have hearings that cover isolated, finite events. And the judge is going to sit up there and say, I'm really not sure what I'm seeing other than the results of the family dynamic. So we talked about the options. You have the mental health professional involved. 
what are they are they kicking out a report 30 days 45 days <laughs> maybe well, where you're sitting anthony not here Real fast, before you discuss that process, in your particular case, was the evaluator a neutral evaluator or was this someone that you had selected? How how did the court approach that appointment? I suggested him and he was court appointed. So I guess yes to both your questions, but he was not my witness. Right. And did the other side pursue getting their own independent evaluation done? They did not. They talked about it, moved for a continuance the morning of day one of the trial. And the judge said, no, too late. You could have gotten your own. So basically their defense was that the evaluator was incorrect and everything was mom's fault, which was not successful. Certainly was not on appeal. I noticed that was one of their issues on appeal was they did not have the opportunity to present their own expert and it was denied on that basis. And, and look, we, we could again, we could do our own podcast or a series of podcasts on simply how to find experts for family law cases. It is a challenge at times to find folks that have experience testifying in court, have the right price for our clients, have immediate availability, and have expertise in the certain fields that we need. It is a challenge at times to find the folks that we need. Anyway, so Joe, you, you found someone, you know, you found an expert for your case and just a little bit, again, an outlook here with regard to the court procedure and the timeline here. You know, when I said 30, 45 days, I, I'm not talking my experience. Mm. You know, heck, I can't even get a real estate appraisal these days back in that amount of time. What would this look like from a procedural perspective? So the appointment was made in May of uh, maybe it rolled into June, but we had the, the hearing in front of the judge May of 2018. We didn't go to trial until July of 2019. The expert report took more than six months. One of the issues was dad raised various uh, obstacles. Dad ended up treating the expert like he treated mom and the court. So um, back to personality traits, that was a big issue. It had taken so long that I had the expert update his report by the time we got to trial. And his second report said dad went from being a moderate alienator to a severe alienator while his petition to modify was pending and we were staring down a trial date. So 14 months from the date that he was appointed until we went to trial, he had updated his report about a month before trial, but it took at least eight months, maybe nine for us to get the report. And all the while, all these facts are brewing and the relationship with the children was getting worse. It's incredibly frustrating. And I think, again, not to go too deep on it, I mean, it's just the reality of the limitations on the legal process where no doubt in cases that could almost mirror the situation where there is an alienator. Yeah, the legal system does its thing, takes 14 months to get to trial all while that 14 months, there's no remedy by the court from a legal perspective. And that is one of the realities and, and limitations on, on our system. You know, I think the three of us here who are active members of the family law bar are, are regularly trying to come up with ways and, I don't know, say fix the system. I wouldn't say that, but at least just find solutions. Aaron, any, anything? Well, yeah, in the time that we have left, I wanted to kind of talk about, if we could try to t talk on about two things that really came to mind in reading the opinions and, and, and through our discussion. One being one of the custody factors. So we've talked about parental alienation and is it quote unquote real? Is it a diagnosis? What, you know, 
It's sort of like art. I don't know it except when I see it. But one of the custody factors is the attempts of a parent to turn the children against the other parent, which is a longer way of of the colloquial phrase parental alienation. So this concept does exist in our custody factors. And what I found interesting about your case is that the trial court found that in favor of mother, that there was this interruption of the parent-child relationship in part due to father. And I want to hear from you a little bit about the facts that went into the court's conclusion, including the child's interview and even the report by the by the psychologist in this case. Right. I'm not telling tales out of school because you can see it in the trial court's opinion in the superior court. And this is always such a challenge for us, right? We, children say things in camera. And we're not supposed to repeat them and, and people figure it out because they connect the dots. It's no surprise these children were telling the evaluator the same things. We want to live with that. We're more comfortable with dad. And mom had been their primary custodian. And then what starts, very concerning, very concerning comments. Dad wants to know if you're helping to pay for college. Dad bought me a car. I'm not allowed to bring it to your house. Please don't tell dad he'll get mad at me. So there's a financial piece. What also happened in this case, which I think is is a pretty common trait of an alienator, is this father said right out of the box once he filed his petition modify, which was six months after he entered into a 50-50 stipulation. So I question his spirit of good faith with that. Is He said, I'll go back to court every six months if that's what my children want me to do, because that's in their best interest. And that was a common theme that he said, I will continue to litigate, which in now, four plus years later, is exactly what he did. Eight days after the Superior Court handed down the opinion, he filed a petition to modify. This man is a serial filer, and he has justified it. So when you hear kids telling the non-money parent, if you will, for lack of a better word, dad wants to know what you're going to pay. Dad won't pay for these things unless X, Y, and Z happens. So you've got all kinds of layers of problem with that. You've got parents talking to kids about money, parents communicating through the children to the other parent. And then you have the kid who is feeling some kind of loyalty and that's how a lot of alienators work. They create, they're, they're terrorists. It's a form of psychological abuse is what it is. That's Jill Scheidt, the layperson, saying that. So these kids are afraid. And so they align themselves with the parent they perceive as more powerful. So when those comments were bubbling up, you know, dad wants to know um, if you're going to pay for this travel soccer club. And dad said, you're supposed to pay for this. Those were hot items to me and in the trial court he actually said after all this effort and expense of having an evaluation and an updated evaluation he said i didn't even need to see any of that i, I what is it the definition of, of pornography or I, I know it when i see it right or art whatever you want to say he said it's very clear to me there was also other evidence that was in the record that didn't make it to the opinion where uh, father had talked to the children about court father had blatantly openly violated the judge's orders. He was ordered several times upon my request pending trial to not discuss with the children things that we all know you're not supposed to talk to kids about. Don't tell them about court. Don't show them subpoenas. And what dad and his lawyer kept doing, be careful. Be a practice pointer. Be careful. If you have a client telling you, bring the kids in. I want the kids in. That's a red flag. If you think your kids are going to do your bidding, back to your example, Anthony, Preference of the child probably should be regarded. If my kids want to live with me because I let them smoke pot in the basement and I never take their video games away and I 
let them have their girlfriends stay overnight and they're 15. That's bad parenting, right? And, and a lot of these parents who are alienators want the kids to come in. So dad kept talking to the kids about court. You're going to be able to come in and tell the judge. Those are really strong indicia that something's wrong. And Joe, I think in this case, you know, practice pointed from you there and in these custody cases, talking with the children, I've heard attorneys say both two things. I mean, I've had some attorneys say, well, if the children are going to testify, which they are required to testify for the court to obtain their preference. And as an attorney, I have a legal duty to ascertain what every single witness is going to say. Right. And, and I know some what attorneys- that rule says. Yeah, the rule says we're supposed to communicate with our clients. I do not agree with that or our witnesses. I do not agree with that when it comes to children. I think we are ethically conflicted because we represent the parents. And the converse of that is I do think that at the end of the day, when you're representing your client, your goal is to get what effectively get what they want. That is how our legal system is designed. And, you know, there's a strong argument to be made that not interviewing the children in your office or anywhere else in advance promotes your position at trial so that you can say, no, judge, I did not speak with the kids in my office. Our side's trying to keep the children out of this process rather than entrench them more. Again, arguments can be made on both sides. I know attorneys do it both ways. I know some judges clarify in their pretrial orders that the attorney shall not communicate directly with the children pending trial. I know some judges do not. I've had the experience where judges did not include that in their pretrial order. And we got to trial and they found out that one of the attorneys had done it and the judge did not like that very much. Yeah, it's, it is a challenge. And again, the, the, the approach at least that I take is I, I don't in advance of trial because I believe it helps. Um, I think it's dangerous. I, if you, most police departments, if there's a minor who's a victim, they have people specially trained to interview minors. I'm not. And I have a conflict. I don't represent them. I represent a parent. So I I hear what you're saying, Anthony. I understand. I've heard those arguments. I've heard the argument made that is a violation of legal custody for a parent to have another lawyer interview a child. Uh, I don't know that that would win, but isn't that an interesting concept? And I don't want to be accused of doing anything wrong. I also don't want to hurt, forget my role as a lawyer. I don't want to make things worse in any capacity. And uh, I, I'm not trained. I'm an advocate. I do direct and cross-examination. I don't know how to ask appropriate questions of children, and I think we can cause more harm. But, yeah, to answer your question, Aaron, I the, the children, I'm not telling tales out of school. The, the children in my case from day one have said they uh, they wanted to live primarily with dad. And as you saw from the trial court opinion, he said it wasn't a well-reasoned preference. They were certainly old enough to have a preference, but to use a lay term, they were brainwashed by dad. So forget it. Yeah, and I guess it's a nice way for us to conclude a little bit, because after reading both the trial opinion and also the superior court's opinion, one of the ideas that I'm struck with is that maybe our court system might be better served by this, you know, parental alienation concept not being codified in the uh, DSM. Because in your case, is a good example of it. It gave the court the flexibility to reach that conclusion, the fact finder to reach that conclusion and put in the appropriate order. 
And if it were in the DSM, there might be a higher scrutiny applied to it. There would probably be a much more extensive evaluation that would have to be undertaken with a completely different criteria than what you had to go through with your case. So I can't help but think that we, that as much as we might like to have that as a, you know, a checklist in the, in the DSM, that we might actually be better served by having it outside of that arena. I agree. I, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And I hadn't thought of that before that the, the advantage is that it can be case by case, which pretty much is how all these child custody cases are anyway. I really like that. I, I go back to. Okay, we're advocates, but in a situation, back to knowing who your judge is, you might have to do some dancing, if you will, and education with the court. And so finding the right expert to come in and say, this is what I know about parental alienation. This is why. And maybe it's not outright alienation, but I see some alienating tendencies. And if we didn't have a diagnosis, we can... We can talk about it in level of uh, in, in degrees rather than a black or white diagnosis. So I, I, that's an interesting way of thinking about it, Aaron. Because in the end, that factor just says the attempts. It doesn't mean they have mm-hmm. to be successful. Uh, it just means that there's a parent that is attempting to turn the children against the other. And it doesn't have any kind of specific intent. It can just be maybe you didn't realize this was happening, but when you talk to your children about finances or adult choices or the other parent in this manner, or you call mom by her first name, and then the kid starts calling mom by her first name or something like that, that those are attempts, but maybe not like a specific intent crime versus not. I like that. One final tip here, and I think, Jill, you haven't said it on the podcast, but I've heard you say it before, is when you are getting ready for trial, Maybe your expert, you're working on your expert on um, either your expert. And, and this goes not just for for this type of case or any, anywhere else. And they they make a conclusion. They say, all right, parental alienation has occurred. That's great. But what else does the report also have to say or is really helpful that it, it, it needs to do? Right. So the first step is identifying the problem. Then you identify the the right expert. Then you get the court to let you appoint that expert and pay for him or her. And, And then the expert says, here's the issue. Here's why. Here's the diagnosis. And what I'm always looking for is I want the expert to identify if there are any diagnoses of each of the parents that need to be addressed. And then I want a roadmap. And I can tell you, we've all experienced this level of frustration. I had a trial on Thursday. We had two experts and we identified the issue and said, who, what do we do next? You've said this parent and child need reunification therapy. Maybe we need a period of sequestration. You know, people go nuts when they hear about sequestration. What do you mean I can't see my kid for 90 days? People go nuts. Well, what do we do next? And who's going to be the captain of the ship? Because we've got an expert who's invested all this energy and time in coming up with a diagnosis and the roadmap going forward. So you've got the diagnosis, you have the history supporting the diagnosis, all the facts, and then you have a couple pages at the end that say, these are the recommendations. And then I say, okay, if the judge were to ask you who in this community could do this, I can tell you they they tap dance. I don't know. I'd have to think about it. I don't really know. Well, then what do we do? Because the judges know less than we do, guys, about who in the community has an area of expertise for whatever is needed. And like I told you, I'm here in Berks County Karen Foundation. If I've got a drug and alcohol problem, world class, people from rock stars from all over the world come to Berks County for drug and alcohol. We don't have a stable of experts for this 
alienation. And very often we have parents who need their own perhaps personality deconstruction because they have been diagnosed with narcissism or dependent personality disorder or borderline or you fill in the blank and they need to go have their own shrink figure it out. They have to buy into it first, which they almost never do. And then you've got to repair the relationship between the child and the parent. So we have a short bench of people who are willing to do it and know how to do it. We don't want people to just be paid friends. These counselors can't just be paid friends. We need them to do the work. Part of my prep is I'm always and and coming to these conferences, learning from other people. Who can I use? I frequently have to go out of the county because all these people are retiring around here. They don't want to do it. Right. Jill, we're going to have to leave it with that. Thank you so much, by the way, for taking your time here and sharing some of your experiences that you had. Thanks for being on. And thank you for everyone for listening. And we'll be posting more episodes of Law and the Family from the Pennsylvania Bar Association. So thank you. Thank you. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash law in the family. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.